Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, watch episodes on our YouTube channel, and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I'm going to take you to an interview that my colleague at New Life East, Rory Green, and I recently did with Michael Hendricks. He's the co-author of this book, The Other Half of Church, Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. And we have heard a lot in recent years about the importance of neuroscience to spiritual formation. Unfortunately, a lot of the resources out there are pretty lofty, and it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around them. This book, The Other Half of Church, uh, does such a beautiful job of, as Daniel Grothy says, putting the cookies on the bottom shelf, helping us understand some of the fundamentals of creating community that's really neuroscience-informed. And we talk some about the difference between the left brain and the right brain, how the left brain is very logic-driven, information-driven, and how so much of our discipleship and spiritual formation really lives in the left brain, but we ignore the importance of the right brain. This is a wonderful and illuminating conversation. I'm really eager for you to enjoy it, so without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. Well, we're happy to have uh, as a guest today Pastor Michael Hendricks. Uh, He received his MDiv from Denver Seminary many years ago and has been a pastor and trainer of pastors for over 25 years, Uh, served as a pastor of spiritual formation at Flatirons Community Church uh, in Lafayette, Colorado, so just a little bit north of here and has really spent his career working with pastors around the globe. Uh, Michael is the author of The Other Half of Church, Christian Community Brain Science and Overcoming (laughs) Spiritual Stagnation, which is what we want to talk with him about today. Michael, we're really happy to have you with us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Man, you're welcome. Okay, so we're going to... I'm just going to start with the most direct question that I can think of to get you talking here, and it's this. Why in the world... Would any pastor care about neuroscience? Why should we care about neuroscience? I mean, we have so many other things to think about. Bible and theology and marriages exploding all over the place and cultural changes, and now all of a sudden we've got to be brain experts? Is that what you're saying here? Why should we care about neuroscience? Well, I'm not saying you need to be a brain expert, but a little neuroscience um, can go a long way. And when you think about it... um, the creative force behind the creation of, of the Bible, of our scriptures that we read and study. Um, most of us here would believe that the same creative force uh, is, is behind the wiring together and design, intricate design of the human brain. Mm-hmm. And so when we start to study the brain, we shouldn't be uh, surprised when we see the two of those really fitting well together like a hand in a glove. And uh, you know, I when I read the when I wrote the other half of church with Jim Wilder, you know, a lot of times it's you know you write a book because you're an expert and look at all this expertise I have and I want to share my expertise with you so you can become an expert. 
That was not the case with this book. This book was very much written out of frustration mm -hmm. and confusion and more questions than answers. And uh, and it even came down to a lunch. I was meeting with a bunch of pastors. We'd talk about discipleship and just how we'd, you know, we're kind of bumping our heads against the wall because it seemed to work sometimes and not others and all this kind of stuff. And some things, some people seemed to really gel with it and others just didn't get it at all. And uh, one of the men in that group said, you know, Michael, I think we're ignoring uh, the, the, the neuroscience angle <laughs> and how, how God designed the human brain and what that, how that helps us with discipleship. And, and my, my reaction was like, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, yeah, the neuroscience <laughs> angle. Of course. How could I forget that? And so when I asked this friend of mine that, I, I questioned him and he said, well, you know, why don't I in invite Jim Wilder to our next lunch next month? I think he can explain it better than I can. Hmm. And so we were meeting monthly in this group of us pastors. And so we got together the following month. Jim Wilder was there. He sat down and looked at me across the table and said, Michael, what would you like out of this meeting? And I said, you know, Jim, I've been a, I'm a pastor of discipleship, and uh, and I feel like I almost don't know how to do my job anymore, mm. because it seems like uh, you know there's certain kinds of problems that the Bible and the usual Christian prescriptions work really well to help us on, but there's other kinds of problems that that it, the usual Christian answers don't seem to really work, mm. and uh, and I have this feeling like I'm missing big pieces of the puzzle to to how people change. Mm. And, uh, and that's when Jim Weiler looked at me and said, you know, Michael, I think it would help you to know a little bit more about how God designed the human brain yeah. to mature us and to build our character if you want to have answers to these questions. Okay, let's use that as a next little entry point to go deeper here, because one of the yeah. things that you make a lot of in the book is like the difference between the left uh, side of the brain and the right side of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I, I think most of us, if we've heard anything about left versus right side, what we tend to do is we tend to think that the left side of the brain is all about logic, and then right side of the brain is all about creativity and so forth, which is not untrue, but you think that the differences between them go deeper than that and are more fundamental than that. Can you just talk to us about what the difference between the left side of the brain is and the right side of the brain and why the right side of the brain is so crucial to our spiritual formation, our discipleship? Yeah, great question. You know, the, the left side of the brain, the left brain, is really what, in popular culture, we think of as the brain. Right. Mm. You know, it's solving problems. Uh, a lot of what the left brain does is it's trying to put words to explain what we sense is going around in our lives and around us, our experiences, and uh, coming up with strategies and our willpower and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it too is just figuring out where to go forward. What what steps do I take? Who am you know? Th these deeper relational questions, however, are done elsewhere in the, in in the brain. The right brain is really our relational, social, emotional brain, mm. and our right brain is the much much more powerful brain. If, you know, it actually has a faster sampling rate than the left brain, so it's always ahead of our conscious awareness and understanding and ability to explain. Mm. But the right brain is is really focused on um, who am I bonded to? What do my people do in this situation? Who is attuning to me? Is there anyone in this group here that get, that gets what's going on inside of me, even without me having to tell them? Yeah. And uh, and who am I? Identity is a really a driver of who we are. And who's happy to be with me? Whose face is lighting up? Mm. Whose face lit up when I walked in the room? Whose face lit up when they saw me? Who am I special to? Right. Mm. And so these things are what Jim Wilder explained to me that day. And he said, these are some of the things that are designed into the brain. And then he said a, a thing that I'll, a, a phrase I'll never forget. He said, Michael, 
over the last thousand years or so, we've largely put our discipleship into the left brain. Mm. It's been all knowledge and, and uh, truth and willpower. Mm. And, and those things are important. They're not unimportant, but the majority of our discipleship and character change and maturity is done in the right brain. Huh. And so we've basically forgotten the raw, we're, you know, we, we dropped off the half of the brain that's doing most of the work in discipleship, which is why we, why we don't see as much transformation of character regularly in our churches anymore. Let me say this. So I, I'm going to quote you back to you here. You said, I realize this is your conversation with Jim Wilder. I realize that the materials and trainings I created for my church leaned heavily on the left brain. So logic and information and willpower and all of that. I overlooked the dominant side for character change, which is the right brain. So it's that side that moves much faster, assesses relational surroundings and all of that. Right brain relational skills should be among the first things, the first things that we teach new believers, because this yep. is the pattern we see in Jesus' life. And then this line just knocked me over. Our brains are designed to change us through love. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, love our, our love really functions in the brain as a, an attachment. It's people we're bonded to who are glad to be with us, who are who I feel special with, who we do life with together, and even even people I'm bonded to that move to the other side of the country because of jobs or anything. You know, like say five years later when we see each other, we're right back into the friendship because it's a permanent bond. Right. That sense of like attachment, love is the strongest force in the human brain. To, to the, for the formation of our character, of who we are. There's nothing more strong about mm. forming us. It's, it's stronger than ha having the right information and truth and good theology, although that's important. Uh, it's even stronger than, than you know, our understanding and ability, ability to explain it to people. It's, our brain was really designed to look for a bigger brain, a brain of a person, of a man or a woman that's further down mm. the road than I am huh. in their knowledge and walking with Jesus and their character formation and their ability to, to handle all the stuff that life throws at them and stay connected with Jesus and keep acting like themselves. Mm. Michael, I think I would imagine as people are listening to this, their brains are starting to do something, especially people in ministry who are going, so wait, is what you're suggesting is that we sort of throw out all of the truth-based, logic-based, uh, sort of thoughtful part of our brain and just revert all the way to the other side and sort of float in a cloud and love one another and whatever. And I, <laughs> I've read your books. So I know that's not what you're saying. You're actually saying, I believe, and I'd love to hear you speak more to this, that what the church actually needs is a space where those two things are converging onto one another. Um, can you just bring that to light a little bit more for us? Yeah, we're, I'm not saying that we drop the left brain skills. We've done a good job at, at building people up in the church over the centuries. Right. I'm saying we need to add the right brain relational skills to that because, you know, for for example, joy. One of the first things Jim Wilder told me is the brain is looking for one thing more than any other thing, and that thing is joy, mm -hmm. which is what I feel in my body when I can tell by looking at your face mm. and your nonverbal stuff that you are happy to be with me and that I'm special to you. That there's great between us, that we're, we're a bonded people and we're in life together. Mm. Our brain is looking for that before any other thing. Mm. And it really, joy really functions as a gas tank. Mm. And so the more faces in, in our community that we have lighting up on us and we're lighting up on each other and there's faces lighting up on each other, we're just filling each other's gas tanks up. Mm. And the more we spend time in gratitude with God as well, build joy with God, we're going, to, going into memories and remembering the good times, the, the good gifts he've given us, you know, the beauty he's shown us and just, and, you know, remembering what it feels like to have Jesus close to us, 
mm. you know, both with each other ver- and vertically with God, with Jesus. Um, that's filling up our gas tank that gives us energy to do everything else we do in life. And when our, our joy tank is low, almost nothing works. Right. Mm. You know, even good things like reading the Bible, memorizing scripture. <laughs> right. With, when our brain is low on joy, nothing really works well. Right. Mm. But when our joy is high, you know, we don't stop doing the left brain stuff. It just makes it work better. Well, it's like if we're settled on the right side of the brain, you know, like we know that we're in secure relational attachments with others. People are happy to see us. We know who we are together. We feel safe there. Then it's almost like we're able to access the left brain more effectively and do that deeper kind of reflection on truth and logic and all the rational type thinking that allows you to sort of architect a new form of existence, you know, which is so much of what discipleship is. It's like coming to grips with the kingdom and then repenting your way into it, you know. Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of how you would say that? Is that how you think about that? Very much like it. You know, most of us has had the experience of, you know, one morning we op- get up and have a cup of coffee or whatever and open our Bibles and we read and it almost is like you know, the words are jumping off the page into right. the depths of my soul. And like God is, is I can feel God's yeah. mind behind the scripture, directing my thoughts about how it applies to me. Mm. And uh, and then a day later, you know, I can wake up, take, have my cup of coffee, sit down and I open the Bible and it's like, it's dead ink on the page and I can't even hardly finish the sentence or absorb anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's an example. That's the contrast between when our right brain is engaged in mm-hmm. our, our reading and study of Scripture versus mm. when our right brain has kind of gone off offline on us. Yeah. Mm. Just so that our pastors and leaders who are listening to this don't think that this is a bunch of hocus pocus, you know, <laughs> um, you actually, I love the work that you do in the book to ground this in God. Like, you talk a lot about um, how... Uh, in the Old Testament, there's this word for the face of God mm-hmm. that is really important to Old Testament theology, but we wind up, in a lot of our English translations, we wind up translating it as the presence of God mm. instead of the face of God. Can you just talk about why the face of God is so important, kind of in Old Testament theology, really New Testament theology too, and what's lost when we abstract it into presence versus face? Yeah, it seems for the Hebrew mind, the presence of God and the face of God are inseparable. Mm-hmm. Now, for us, you know, in Western minds, if you say the presence of God, that can be this kind of intangible, it might for some includes the face of God, it might for others not. But for the Hebrew mind, the, the face was the presence. For the young, a young child just born, the presence of mom is her face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First your body, but as soon as the little baby's eyes come online, God designed the baby to actually grow in in uh, joyful reactions of mommy's face lighting face up on baby mom. and baby's mm. face. They actually climb Joy Mountain. You know, the baby gets done eating and maybe the baby's full and then looks up and smiles at mommy and baby joy bumps up joy and mommy sees that smile and mommy goes up joy and baby and mommy go joy, joy, wow. joy, and they climb up Joy Mountain together. After a while, mommy, the baby gets f- so full of joy that the baby needs a break. Mm. And so the baby will do this thing called gaze avert and it'll break eye contact. <laughs> and then the wise mother will actually allow the baby to break eye contact. Oh. She won't continue to build joy because she knows the baby needs some rest and the baby's absorbing this wonderful joy. Yeah. 
and just recovering from so much fun. And then after about 30 seconds to a minute, boom, the baby's back. And mom and baby go back up Joy Mountain. And then they rest. And they go back up Joy Mountain. And then they rest. Yeah. And so this face shining on each other really was built into the very circuits of our brain and the very thing that fills in the development of the rest of our brain and our identities. That a face that's happy to see us is how we form mm. and develop and grow. It's the thing that propels us forward in life. Which is why, like, the priests in the Old Testament, I mean, their blessing is we end all of our services with this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. There's We grow as we come to apprehend how much delight God has in us. It reciprocates mm-hmm. a kind of delight that uh, it motivates us, if I hear you right, it motivates us to sort of Climb Joy Mountain, but there's an ethical component of that. We're trying to, it's like we're trying to sync up with who God is mm-hmm. as we sense his delight. Is that right? Absolutely right. And it kind of highlights in our country the importance of letting our face shine on people and shine on our children. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife and I uh, like to go on hikes here in Boulder, and one of our favorite hikes takes us by this playground as we go out before we go out into the country. And oftentimes we're, we walk by and we see these little toddlers with bippity bopping around and going on the swing and sliding and it's the most beautiful thing. And a lot of times then I look over at a bench there and I look at the parent and the parent is like this, mm. face buried in the phone. Yes. Mm. And they don't realize that that's almost like withholding food from that child. Yeah. That baby's brain six times a second is scanning these environments for whose face is happy to be with me. And that doesn't mean we do irreparable harm if we look at our phone, but is in general, it's a general thing, is in general, do I see mom, do I see? Do I feel dad just delighting in me and looking at me and enjoying my presence and giving me that feedback? That will set that child up for a really solid identity versus if, you know, very consistently my parents are looking elsewhere, they're not giving me that nonverbal feedback over life. My, my, I will have a wobbly identity that will need to be worked on later in life. And that was my story. I was not given a very solid identity. Mm. I had to do the work on it later. Um, the, good, the good news about it is the area of the brain we do that is constantly learning till the day we die. It's producing fetal biomatter and can learn to literally the last day of life that we can build joy and build and stabilize that identity that maybe didn't get s- stabilized very well in the first four years of life. Amazing. Yeah, I, I hear we're spending a lot of time talking about the joy component of these four things that you talk about in your book, Michael. Would you be willing... To, I think we've hit joy pretty clearly. Joy is such an important part of it. Can you break down what those other three are in sort of this right-brained ministry communal sort of way? Yeah. Yeah, we use the analogy of soil and that um, soil we need to put constantly put new nutrients in so that it's a fruitful place where things will naturally grow, mm-hmm. Right. And so there's relational soil in our churches and our communities. And uh, a lot of times we run the soil dry. Mm. We, we, we use up all the nutrients and it's, and even though we plant really healthy seeds in that soil, not much grows or it just struggles to grow. And so joy is the first relational nutrient we need to add to the soil so that it's a place where we naturally transform and mature and grow in our ability to love like Jesus loved. Mm. Um, the second one is 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 the attachment love we talked about. We use the Hebrew word chesed. Yep. Chesed is our, our deeply bonded um, group of people who with whom we, we share life and are concerned for each other's well-being, whom we share weakness with and strengths, successes, and failures. Mm. And uh, 
our churches, what it really says for our churches is that our churches need to function much more as families rather than religious organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, religious organizations aren't primarily designed to get people bonded at a family level. Mm. A lot of times they're more designed to get some good religious Christian-y stuff done. Right. Whereas families primarily and fundamentally are, are creating a family of people that we're bonded to for life. And then we do some good stuff together as well, but the bonding is 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 first and is fundamental to everything else. Mm-hmm. And so these first two nutrients, which is joy and hesed, really are like fertilizer. Mm. You know, you work fertilizer into soil, and it'll cause everything to grow, right? Well, unfortunately, fertilizer will also called call, cause weeds to grow quickly as well. As most of us, anybody who's done any kind of gardening or has a lawn knows that, right? right. And so the second two nutrients um, are really making sure we're growing the right things. Mm, yeah, right. And those two are group identity and healthy correction. Group identity is stating what kind of people are we? Hmm. You know, we are a people of, you know, that, who are very slow to speak and we're quick to listen. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus' half-brother wrote us. Mm-hmm. We are a people who um, love our enemies and we, ter- we return curses with blessings. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things are like they're they're kind of pruning our our value of who we are as a people. Now, some of us grew up with some good group identity built into us from our families and our communities and previous mm-hmm. church experiences, and we also all of us have some some uh, corrupted group identity, mm-hmm. which is not really who we are. That's been corrupted with things that don't line up well with God's kingdom and His love and the way Jesus did His life on earth that showed us how His kingdom looks on earth. And so when we find that we stopped acting, stop act like, acting like ourselves, which we do at times, every one of us stops acting like ourselves in times, yeah. that's when we need the fourth ingredient, which is healthy correction, which is really, it's not me so much like rebuking you in a harsh sense. It's me reminding you who we really are. Mm-hmm. It's very much a reminder like, you know, Michael, you know, in that last staff meeting when that person, you know, came up with that idea and you kind of rolled your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> You know, maybe this person, before. after the meeting's over, maybe this person comes to my office, knocks on the door and says, you know, when you did that, it was kind of belittling to that person. Hmm. And uh, let me remind you who we are. We are people who are incredibly patient with the people around us, just because God is is patient with us in the same way with all of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seemed to me that you weren't very patient with her. And instead you were kind of like saying, what a stupid idea that yeah. is. Well, that person, if we have a good bond between us, that person just rewired my brain, Mm. literally rewired Mm. it in a way that in the future, when I'm in a similar situation and someone says something I think is a dumb idea, you know, instantly my instantaneous reaction, it's not my willpower, my instantaneous reaction is to be kind and gentle with them and humble and actually go, hmm, that might, there might be some goodness in that idea that I'm not seeing right now. And so the question is, are we rewiring each other's brains when we see each other forgetting who we are and not acting like ourselves, the kind of people that we are? Michael, it's so profound what you're saying. This was that chapter, especially on healthy correction, really grabbed me because I think one of the things that we have given away in the American evangelical church in, let's call it the last 50 years or so, as we become more seeker-sensitive, maybe in some ways more consumeristic in our approach, you know, we just got to get as many people in here as possible, is that we've given away church discipline. Mm. Yep. And there are a lot of churches and movements out there that are trying to recapture it, 
But in their recapturing, it's done in such a heavy-handed way that it winds up being more detrimental and toxic to the church than not having any discipline at all. But what you're saying is that if our relational skills are right, we can do church discipline in a way that you might not even realize that it's actually church discipline. But it's really, when you think about like what what does it mean to be a healthy individual is that we have self-regulating mechanisms in our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is really about flipping on the self-regulating mechanism in the body of Christ, isn't that right? It's very much that 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 cycle that self-regulating cycle can be trained and it's training it together. Yeah. And the key is too that you and I have joy and hesed together. Meaning I can tell you're happy to be with me even when I don't act like myself. And I can tell that our friendship is is uh, stronger than this problem that I that I just exhibited in that meeting. Yeah. And so, Andrew, when you come to my door and knock on the door and say, you know, Michael, that that wasn't your best self back there. Mm. My brain can see in your eyes that our friendship is solid. Our friendship is not in danger mm. right now. Mm. But you're just reminding me because I forgot. And someday in the future, I'll probably have to remind you as well. It reminds me of what Pete Scazzaro talks about and some of his emotionally healthy stuff where he says like here's a sentence stem that can work is uh, you've been, you've either seen some behavior that is offline from what the group identity is, or you've experienced it personally. And the way that you approach that person is not in a heavy handed way, but it's like, I'm puzzled by, (laughs) can we have a conversation? And what you're doing is you're trying to tease out the truth of what happened there in that moment. I, I think if I can, I think What's interesting, Michael, even in the sort of example that you've given us, I think a lot of people would hear that story and go, well, is it that person that feels like they're overstepping, they're bringing stuff to my door that they shouldn't. In fact, maybe in like the most extreme sense, what you're going to now be left with is a sense of guilt and shame and embarrassment. And one of the things you talk about in your book that I think you and I have sort of talked about offline is you actually propose that shame is not maybe as bad as we think it is. Um, You actually have a quote, if I can read it. You write, neuroscience reveals that shame is necessary for character change. Mm. Our brain has dedicated circuits for handling shame, and they're tied to other circuits that control the formation of character. Shame is important for socialization, and without it, our character will not change. Can you help our listeners understand that a little bit better? Yeah, I'm not saying that change is all good or shame is all good. What I'm saying is there's a form of healthy shame and there's a form of toxic shame. Yeah. Yeah, describe the difference between those. Toxic shame is what most of us probably experienced as shame. Yep. And so when you say, you know, shame is important, you know, a lot of people's brains go back into the examples in their life of when shame was very toxic and humiliating and non-relational and they go, no way, I'm not going to believe that. Mm. And I agree. But what I'm saying is there's another form of shame that's deeply, deeply relational. And that form of shame is, you know, you, you know, let me remind you who we are. I think you've forgotten who you were mm, there. Yeah. That feels a lot different than, Andrew, don't ever do that again. You were acting like <laughs> an right. idiot, and I slam your, my, my door in my office on you. It's right. like I'm embarrassed because I, healthy shame would be like, I'm embarrassed because I haven't acted like us. Right. Exactly. I've forgotten who we are, and I stopped acting yeah. like who we are. Yeah, I like that because, I, you know, we, t- we um, I will say more about this in a second, but we spoke with Chuck DeGroat a few weeks ago on his the stuff that he's done on narcissism, and one of the things that he points out in his book is that uh, part of the way that narcissism develops in us is that we, met- I just love this line, 
that we metabolize shame in non-relational ways. Yep. What would a relational way of metabolizing shame look like? So when you knock on my office door and say, Michael, you rolled your eyes, you know, that was really humiliating to this person. And then you give me good connection. I can see on your face though. The nonverbal skills, my face is, is scanning. My eyes are scanning your face six times a second. And I can tell I'm still good with Andrew. He's still my friend. He's still happy to be with me. And he saw, you know, he's being a mirror to me. There's like a smudge. There's like some spinach in my teeth, right? <laughs> right. It's really, it's always easier not to tell you when you have a piece of spinach stuck between your teeth. Yeah. Wow, Andrew is a real friend. He actually has the courage to come up to me and say, you know, Michael, you got some spinach hanging between your teeth. You might want to clean that out. Mm-hmm. That's actually a deeper form of love rather than kind of avoiding the, I might, I might feel unpleasant at first, yeah. you know, this, this rolling my eyes at something as a piece of spiritual spinach hanging between mm-hmm. my teeth that I can't see without a mirror. Yeah. Yeah. And Andrew, by coming to my office is being a mirror for me, but it's full of compassion. It's highly relational. Our friendship is way, way bigger than this problem. Yeah. Now, when it gets the other way where the problem is way bigger than our friendship, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then we've gone into the toxic shame area. Yeah. You know, you talked about narcissists. Narcissists, really, one of the de- definitions of a narcissist is a, is a person who will not accept a healthy shame message. Mm-hmm. And the reason they will not accept it is because to them, shame uh, is threatening to them. It's all evil and must be avoided at all, uh, in all ways, in all co- situations. Yeah. Say more about this narcissism thing here. I want you to tease this out a little bit because that, again, I had just read Chuck's book at about the same time that I was reading yours and I went, oh my goodness. Like what you say is that if you do these four things, if you've got a culture that embodies these four things, so joy, strong connection, group identity, and healthy correction, you'll basically make your culture immune to the toxic effects of narcissism. Talk to us about that. Yeah, if we are a deeply bonded family rather than just a shallowly bonded uh, religious organization, and if our our faces are shining on each other regularly and we're and we're intentionally and regularly building up what kind of people we are, so in our small groups, in our time together, in sermons, in talks, in our religious, in our, our time together worshiping God, if we're constantly reminding each other what kind of people we are. And then we're sharing examples of when people correct me. Like say, if I'm the pastor, if I'm regularly sharing when my wife corrects me because I blow it, when my son corrects me because I didn't do something very well. And also when I had opportunities to correct the people around me, but in a very healthy and relational way, we are, we are making some soil that narcissism will not be able to ha- thrive very well. Mm-hmm. Because a narcissist, you can never help a narcissist just one-on-one because they will dismiss you. They'll divide and conquer. <laughs> right. But if the community surrounding the, the person who's stuck in this way of life, who love this person, who have hesed deep love with the person, mm-hmm. this person, but at the same time will very kindly and gently remind them, we become gentle protectors and gentle confronters and say, you know, that's not who we are. You know, when you, when you wrote that angry email to the parishioner who said you might have, you know, taught that, that scripture wrong, you know, it's not, it's not the way we are to blow up on people. Instead, we're very kind. Jesus was very, very patient and kind with people, even when they weren't, they weren't necessarily not that kind to him. Um, if, if that's the kind of way we interact with each other, then narcissism cannot flourish, and a narcissist mm. will, even, will either change or he'll self, self-eject. Either way, he, he can't thrive in that soil. Mm. The soil was not designed for the narcissist to thrive. I'm, I'm wondering for our folks who are listening, who maybe this is their first time hearing some of this material, maybe they've read your book in the past, um, 
I imagine they're starting to do the thing in their head where they go, well, how would I know if the ministries, the churches, the spaces that I'm leading or help helping occupy are embodying any of these values yet? Do you have any questions that a person who's listening could start to interrogate or evaluate their ministries and space, some thoughts that could come into their head as they're thinking about this? Yeah. Do we always uh, keep relationships as more important than any problem we have? Mm. Not that we deny or ignore the problem, but even while we're working on the problem, we're simultaneously keeping the relationship as more important. Uh, do our leaders seem to be men and women who are um, relationally healthy, who know how to handle relational ruptures in a way that actually makes the relationship stronger afterwards? Are we people who know how to regulate you know, the big emotions? Here's a good example. Do we see uh, people using anger to um, improve our relationships rather than destroy our relationships? Wow. Wait, can you just hold on? I, well, we're we're going to stop right there. Uh, say something more about that, because I think, you know, uh, when Rory was asking the question about shame, I thought, you know, that's one of the things that we see as uniformly negative in the church, so we're always trying to just excise shame, but here you are kind of recapturing healthy shame for us. I think you just said that there's such a thing as healthy anger. Yep. Can you say something about that? Oh, yeah. Any of this, There's six really big emotions on our right brain. It's called sadness anger, fear, shame, hopeless despair, and disgust. All of these anger systems were meant to be deeply connected to our joy center, which means we can be angry and still really happy to be with you. Mm. Uh, I can be ashamed and I'm still happy to be with you. I can be afraid right now, but I'm happy to be with my people and I can Mm. feel God's happy to be with me. Now, most of us can't do this. This is called emotional regulation, but we have skills and drills. Like I work with churches, lead teams of churches and ministries, and uh, we actually spend a significant amount of time training on and making all six of these big emotions deeply, deeply relational. Mm. The brain is immensely trainable in this, but it means you have to do some exercises. You know, it's very much like uh, if I'm trying to learn the guitar and I'm, you know, like learning a D chord and a G chord and I can barely get to the G, then the D, you know, and then I just kind of go back and forth for like an hour Mm. until people in my house start throwing shoes at me and everything and telling me to stop playing. (laughs) But after I do that a certain amount of time, then I can go D, G, D, G, D, G without even thinking about it. Right. Well, we can train the same way our our relational regulation, our emotional regulation by doing certain types of skills that we teach. So that when you are in a big anger situation, you feel angry, it comes out deeply relational and and under your control and is very slow. Mm. Relational anger is slow anger, Mm -hmm. but it's also highly relational anger. Like, man, you know, I'm not happy. I'm, you know, that made me angry when you said that about me. And let me show you why this made the anger angry. But our friendship is is way more important than this. So we, let's sit down and work through this anger so that we can have a a better friendship afterwards. It's Mm. a passion to rectify the relationship. Our relationship is bigger. It's always bigger. In Jesus, you see Jesus' yeah. relationship is always bigger, always. Yeah, I mean, this is what our God embodies for us. You know, I think mm-hmm. about the great statement, the Lord's self-identity in Exodus, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding mm-hmm. in love and faithfulness. There are consequences for sin, which he teases out, but the covenant always trumps whatever those consequences are, so it's always held inside the covenant. It yep. seems like you're suggesting that we can do that for each other. Yeah, and Jesus is our hero, mm-hmm. right? He's the model. He's the one who has it all down. We don't have it all down. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, look at God, all that he's had to put up with over the years with all of us. Think of each of us, think our own least um, least proud moment we are of ourselves. Mm. Did God abandon us then? Mm. He did not. Maybe he came back with us later and allowed us to be corrected. Maybe he did it himself, or maybe he had a brother or a sister do it. Um, but he never stopped loving us, never stopped being happy with us. And so he is he is our hero. He is our example. He's the one we follow, but there's work that we have to do. Mm-hmm. It's not the Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't just snap its fingers and all of a sudden I can regulate anger. Mm-hmm. Because he's given that work to us, so we need to do that together as a community. So good. Well, Michael, it's been a joy to talk with you. Thank you for the good work that you did in this book. Thank you for your Uh, ministry. And thank you for the ways in which you're embodying the love of God for the church, man. We appreciate you, and we bless you. Yeah, we do. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you for having me on and having some life-giving conversations together. 